Wednesday, March 4th, 2009, upon further review, episode number 68. In this episode, we talk about con men and politicians. Now, we know no one has ever made this connection before, but, um, have they? Upon further review, I'm Greg. I'm Clea. I want to welcome everybody to episode number 68 of the show. This show, we have uh, only a couple of things that we're going to be reviewing because of the Minister Faust interview, which we began in episode 67. We've gotten some positive responses from that. Apparently, people thought that was interesting. We thought so, too. And it was so long that there's actually a third part that will be coming in a a future show. That's right. It's it's, uh, all great things must be in, in threes. So this will be as well. So the second part of the interview will happen after our portion of the show. And we thought it about something that we could sort of connect with that because uh, the, this part of the interview deals with the subject of Barack Obama and stuff like that. And then we decided, well, we are not thematic on this show anyway. No, no, no. Actually, that is exactly like Greg was like, well, okay, what are we going to do with because we have to have a theme? I was like, um, when do we ever have a theme, Greg? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, that's right. That's right, and and Clea, as as she often is, was correct, and uh, so we decided not to do this, do that part. So so this is not thematic, unless you think that uh, politicians have leverage, in which case that may actually fit uh, the description. Uh, uh, yeah, thank you, thank you. I do what I can. I'll be here all week. So today we are going to be reviewing the TV show Leverage, and this kind of fell into our laps a little bit because I was watching, I think um, maybe five six months ago, I was watching some NBA and TNT, as they often do for their shows. The TNT network was doing an incredible amount of advertising for it. So every other commercial was, you know, leverage, 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 new show, leverage, Timothy Hutton, Academy Award winner, Timothy Hutton, Timothy Hutton, Timothy Hutton, leverage. Right. So they were all over that. And I thought, well, okay, this is, this better be a good show because if it's not a good show, then it will be a, a complete waste of my time. Maybe I've seen all these commercials for it. And it just looked like a cool show. And so I said to Clea, we should take it and check it out. And we did. Well, you know and what this means though, right, Craig? What's that? That it worked on you. The advertising? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, I was I was completely dragged in. That's true. But it, but see, it wasn't like I didn't want to watch the show, and then the 75th advertisement, I was right, like, right, fine, right. you've bludgeoned me. Like, about right, the third well, no, time, I, mean, I was like, okay. Then after that, if anything, it was getting me annoyed, and I was like, I don't want to do any more of this. So, I understand. Yes, so, so, but in any case, so we decided that we would review that show, and uh, we were pretty we're pretty pleased with the show, we have to say, as you'll hear during the course of our review. You can find out more about the show at its website, which is at www.tnt.tv slash series slash leverage. And essentially, this show is kind of an Ocean's Eleven, if you've ever seen that movie. It's kind of a TV series version of Ocean's Eleven. A lot of people have also compared this to the British series Hustle, which is very similar in that regard. And the premise of the show is that the guy played by Timothy Hutton, whose name is Nathan Ford, is a former insurance investigator who, for a variety of reasons, which we won't talk about because it'll spoil it for you, ends up being out of a job. And he gets approached by a guy to put together a team to steal some plans from his corporate rival. And the team that he puts together together is all of these former high-level thieves. Like Not he was former. In, they're still active. Well, they're still thieves. That's true. All these thieves that he used to formerly track down. I right. guess that's what I meant. Right. But when he was an insurance investigator, and when I say insurance investigators, there are people like this in the world. This guy is a high-level investigator who goes after like art theft and you know things that are like incredibly kind of almost valuable like an FBI stuff. Agent. He's, almost. He knows how to do all sorts of things. He's yeah. not just like book pusher. Right. Exactly. He's, you know, my father was an insurance investigator for about a week and I didn't get the impression he was running to Damascus to go 
go, uh, you know, track down people who had stolen statuary or something like that. probably different levels. Yes, I think my father was not the high-level one. <laughs> um, <laughs> so anyway, this guy is a high-level guy. And so he gets a bunch of people who are the best at what they do. And each of the thieves has their own particular ability. So mm-hmm. there's a uh, cat burglar whose character name is Parker. She's also kind of bizarre. And she grows on you. When you first see her, you're kind of like, why is she acting so weirdly? But mm-hmm. you start to figure out why. And she's enjoyable. There's the guy who's known as a retrieval specialist. He's basically the muscle. So he's this incredible martial artist and this guy who, you know, when they need some physical presence, this is the guy they send in. That guy's name right. is Elliot. Or a hottie. Oh, yes. If, if you think that he is. I have heard some rumors that women seem to find him attractive. I don't mm. know if that's true. Mm. Anyway, and then the other guy, then the two others are Hardison, who is the uh, computer guy. So he's the high-tech IT, you know, hacker type fraud stuff. He's also uh, a geek, and it's very funny to hear him talking about World of Warcraft references and things like that. And he's kind of the comic relief of the show, although the show's kind of, there's a lot of comedy in it, so I don't know about mm-hmm. how much relief you need. But anyway, <laughs> and then the last person is Sophie Devereaux, who's the grifter. So she is, basically does all these high-stakes cons in high society, and the joke about her is that she's an aspiring actress, but she's terrible except when she's doing a job. When she's a job, she's this incredible actress. It's totally convincing. When she's actually trying to act, she's horrendous. So that's kind of the joke about that, and there's also this sort of love tension between her and Nathan Ford. So that's the premise, and every show, after the first show happens, they have lots of money. I won't explain why. And so the rest of the episodes, people come to them with problems that the law can't solve, you know, either the corporations that wouldn't pay for repairs, you know, for certain kinds of repairs and that caused mm-hmm. other things to happen or, you know, large government groups, liked, things like that. that we that talked about it before in this show. What was the show that you used to like? It was out in the 80s or something. It was that guy? Oh, The Equalizer. Yeah. So very it's, sim- like, it's like a team version of The Equalizer. Yep. That's a good one. I think that's true. And the thing about it is, is that they're all, you know, thieves, as Clea said, but Nathan Ford is still an honest guy. And he says he thinks of himself as this guy who picks up where the law leaves off, basically. Uh, and the and great- they all need him to kind of run the show. Right, because they're all used to doing it alone, right. and so he kind of is the one who demonstrates how they can work collectively, because he's this he's this brilliant guy who's able to figure out all these ways to work around he's things. He's kind of able and, to see the, the forest for the trees, yep. so he kind of sees the big picture so that he can kind of manipulate all of them. I don't want to say manipulate, but move all the chess pieces. Yeah, in the he way pushes the right buttons when he needs to. I'd say that's true. And so every episode, people come to them and some some larger force than any individual can take on, they're able to take on. So there have been times when they've had to deal things with a, you know, a guy trying to take over a church and then there's government, you know, this thing in Iraq where the government was covering up this private mm-hmm. security firm's thing and there was all this stuff. So there are yeah. a lot of different versions of these heists and they normally last an episode, although there are certainly through lines that go through several episodes that happen too. So. Right, and I, I think... Now, I would say it doesn't lack for variety. I mean, as you were saying, it does the full gamut of all sorts of possible jobs they could do. Mm-hmm. And and so I think that there could be unlimited number of episodes. I mean, you really create it. You know, I don't think there could be any limit limit to the creativity. I agree. I mean, I read one of the criticisms of this. Some people had compared it to Mission Impossible, which you know makes exactly. some sense. Exactly. And I heard some people say I had read some criticism that the most a lot of the criticism, a lot of people like the show, but the, a lot of them would say this is great, this is great, but I just don't know how long they can keep it up because eventually, how many heists can you have? And I no. thought, are you out of your mind? No, like how that's many? The thing. It's not just a heist. It's just yeah. It's not just a bank robbery. It's any big shadowy force that shouldn't yeah. be able to be approached, right. you know. And the other thing I like the 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 connection to Mission Impossible actually because I remember when the first Mission Mission Impossible came out, the movie. I mean, I know there was a show as well, but when the movie came out, you know the opening scene where they were all working together and they had a banter and there was one guy kind of running, make sure all the pieces grow together, mm-hmm. and then the whole team dies. Yeah. And you kind of go, ah, oh, I wish it was just a whole movie of that. Yeah. 
you don't want the whole stupid Tom Cruise thing. Right, I agree. I totally agree. And uh, and this is that. Yep. It's it's that corny banter, but still they know what they're doing. They're extremely good at what they're doing. They have the best uh, technology at their hands. And also it's a whole uh, show of it. So you get the beginning where they're really extra confident. Then things go wrong. Other little things come into play that they weren't expecting. You know, they are able to pull through. So it, it there is still the suspense. And uh, I think I find it very interesting. I think the other aspect, though, is, is it's corny. If you're someone that hates it when there's stupid dialogue or obvious acting choices or something like that, then this isn't the show for you. I mean, there's numerous times where I kind of go, oh, my God. You know, because yeah. it's just like, what? That's so stupid. But it's also charming, though. I but, mean, that's yeah, like, exactly. Ocean, that's it, like Ocean's Eleven. I mean, is a right. good example. I mean, it doesn't take itself too seriously. And to right. be perfectly frank, although there are some serious moments in the show. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I'm not saying it's not doesn't have its moments but i'm saying no you know, but you're totally are. right about that yep absolutely and and i think that's i think that's a good point and i think that it is one of those things i love the born series but the born mm. series does not have a sense of humor like in a way it's not supposed to right because jason Bourne is this really impressive spy and there's all these things going on but this is an example of something where yeah it's kind of goofy and most of the stuff that they do seems to have a logical premise to it like there are very few cases where you look at it and go wait what but there are certain examples where it happens where you think, no, that wouldn't happen that way, or this person wouldn't do things in that particular. You know, they kind of had to right. fiddle with the plot a little bit, but right. it's never too extreme. I thought to sort of drive you out of the action. No. It generally is sort of well planned out. That's one of the pleasures of it is watching how the plan actually works. Right. And the other thing I like about it is that it's not formulaic, right. because sometimes they're very competent at the beginning. Right. Things go wrong. Things happen. Right. Sometimes they screw up at the beginning. Sometimes they screw up at the end. Sometimes they don't screw up, but they have yeah. to like go do other things that are involved. Right more complexity so right. i like the fact that it's not always we can do this oh right. my god and mm-hmm. then they somehow pull it out like mm-hmm. there are different versions of that too mm-hmm. and the show most shines of course because of the chemistry between the cast i think that yeah. i think there's great chemistry in this cast some of the people other than timothy hutton the people are ones that you may be vaguely familiar with yeah. like the guy who plays hardison was originally on friday night lights the movie the uh, christian kane plays elliot and i don't remember what christian kane was in beth reesgraf plays parker and she was in without a trace if you've seen that tv show apparently so Sophie Devereaux's uh, actress, I can't remember who plays her, was in the British series Coupling, which was relatively, you know, people had heard of before. So that's what I was going to say. If you've kind of watched, if you're kind of a TV person, you've seen all this. Like, that's so funny. I like, I think I Netflixed Coupling. Yeah. Like a a year ago. Yeah. And she's from New Zealand originally, that woman. Well, all of uh, the characters looked familiar, all of the actors looked familiar. And then Timothy But not too familiar that, you know, okay, you know, it's another person, actor that you've seen nonstop. So you just see the the actor and not the character. Right. And the, the other thing, and they so they have very good chemistry. They all seem to have fun. There's very much a family atmosphere to the show. And since we're on that subject, by the way, for a show which deals with high-tech thievery and stuff, you know, I can't say that this is family-friendly on the level of like five- and six-year-olds because there's certainly some violence. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, there is no language to speak of. There yeah. is nothing extreme that happens in the show in terms of like really disturbing or images like or yeah. anything like that. Yeah. I mean, like, the guy gets into fistfights sometimes. Yeah. So I would say that. But it really is a pretty family-friendly show. And, and it's a fun what? show to sort of I'm watch along together. I'm glad you that because that's one thing that I've really noted. We were just commenting in this, um, I think, last year, kind of last season of shows with uh, Heroes and a few other things, a lot of shows on TV are really pushing the gore 
and the disgusting yep. violence. Yep. Again, it's just so sad. It's like the the thing that we were talking about with the Super Bowl, where everyone was up in arms about Janis Jackson maybe showing some kind of nipple coverage, right. and yet they don't care about the fact that before that and after that we're showing this violent sports game. I mean, that's just the way America seems to be. Is yeah. like we 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 care so much. Oh, sex, it's so bad, but but violence and showing people. Uh, opening up people's brains in order to torture them. I mean, that's They're just like, well, that's fine. That's fine. No big deal. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's completely backwards, and it should be the exact opposite. You yeah. know, it tends to be the way in in Europe. You know, right? Well, in that's Europe, what I'm saying. They're much more easy on easy going on the sex content, and much more you know hardcore about avoiding violence, which right. I think is the way that it should be. But right. anyway, so this show I think is a good balance of that, and they have just announced that they've re-upped uh, the series for another season, and that's because it's been doing very well in the 18 to 49 uh, demographic, which is the big uh, target prize. I'm 18 glad. 18 to 49. That's that's quite a group. Yeah. Aren't you happy that we're in that group? <laughs> <laughs> we're like solidly in that group. We are neither below or above so, that demographic. So 40 is the new 20 then. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. 49 is the new 24. That's right. Well, that's because Sweet. the buying powder of the 48-year-old is the new, I don't know. <laughs> it's the economy, I think. But it was funny. I think I told you this too. That initially, I was reading the press release that said they had re-upped it and they said the 18 to 49. I was like, oh, that's good. And they wanted to say, it's also winning the paid for cable at Tuesday at 10 o'clock. I'm like, okay, guys yeah you know watched by left-handed eskimos in antarctica yes i i'm <laughs> glad that you're winning that demographic can you make it any more subdivided i wonder but, if um, most eskimos are left-handed i don't know there's probably a lot of inbreeding i wonder if any of them live in antarctica where nobody lives as far as i know <clears throat> Anywho. <laughs> okay. um so yeah so, it's coming out this summer so it's coming out again this summer uh we t-vote a lot of the older episodes and you can do that as well but you can also get a lot of the episodes apparently online on tnt.tv I mean, which i think is TNT a good idea is which is a good idea any show um, yep you know you can go just, and check out the episodes wait and online. it will come back on again but It'll it's usually some... about two three weeks later I think is what they said. Yeah, but also, you know, probably before the second season starts, they'll do a marathon, like right. a weekend marathon. Well, they're every day they'll show it all of them over and over and over again. Yep, so. I think that's going to be something like that. So you should definitely get a chance to check it out. They're all called something job, and it's sort of like the church job or the right. miracle job right. and the horse job where they have to deal with this guy who had this problem with one of his horses or something. So they're all different. I this is my new favorite show uh, since Boston Legal is now sadly you know done and closed and finished. And did. Um, become formulaic and to become formulaic yes that's true boston legal did sort of get that way this is my new favorite show and so i very much enjoyed it i think clea enjoyed it probably about as much as i did although i just get very giddy about these things so i was just like clea this is so great look at this they're doing this and they're doing this so i really i'll take any opportunity for greg to watch tv with me so i enjoyed it and uh, we've been having a good time watching it and i think it's a really good show i really enjoy it well put together and i'm glad that they renewed it so Mm -hmm. rating eight yeah, it was, it's good. I would agree. I would say an 8 out of 10. It's not perfect. As Clea said, the dialogue can sometimes be a little even over hokey. But for the most part, I think it's a good show. And if you go in wanting to have fun and occasionally being surprised by things that people say that isn't just about fun but has some sort of serious message behind it, that's good. If you go in looking for this will all be serious suspense, then you're in the wrong place. But if you're looking for a fun, fast-paced action show which can occasionally and suspense which can surprise you sometimes, that's exactly what this show is about. So, right. so we would advise that you check it out it's normally tuesdays at 10 i believe although it's on hiatus because they're you know between seasons mm-hmm. and so you can check it out at the website and other places 
Right. So that's going to do it for us uh, individually on this show. Stay tuned now for the second part of the Minister Faust interview, and we will be back to you guys shortly with the next part of our, uh, the last part of the Minister Faust interview Mm -hmm. and more review goodness. Until then, please make sure to get in contact with us on our website. I am going to be getting a new phone number. Our old phone number is defunct, so I'll be getting a new one very soon. But in the meantime, you can always contact us on the website, and please continue to spread the word about the show because you know how much we love you guys and how much we appreciate it. What was that website that did the review of uh, trilogies? The meth, um, Dan Meth something. He's a comedian, former comedian. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, yeah, he did a cartoon in which he sort of listed oh, each trilogy as a bar graph. Right. And each part of the trilogy. Why did so, you think of that? Well, he should, he should do a review of our trilogy. Oh. But they'd all be pinned at the very top, right? Well, yes, but doesn't mean he shouldn't do it. Oh, okay. Well, if you're out there, sir, if right. you could do something of our show, which is not a movie, <laughs> we'd really appreciate it just to break the mold. Exactly. <laughs> Until then, we hope you guys have a great couple of weeks, and we will talk to you guys soon. Upon further review, I'm Greg. I'm Clea. See ya. Yeah, the idea of uh, of simultaneity is something which I think the former American president was not particularly good at, uh, which is I'm, I'm hoping our new one is better at, at multitasking, frankly, uh, both personally and, and outside in the personal world. Um, he will be, although I fear exactly what those tasks will be. Right, right. Well, I, and I'm hoping that we're going to be able to ch- get a chance to get into that. Well, I do promise to get to that about the subject of Obama. One thing I did want to mention that struck me as you were talking, though, actually, is that one of the things that Obama referred to at many times during the campaign or people... He referred to it obliquely, and I think other people talked directly, sort of commented about it in him, was that there's a real lack of bitterness, which I think was appealing about Obama, that he didn't, you know, he didn't grow up with the same kinds of experiences, that he didn't have that same, that same sensation of bitterness. And so it didn't, it didn't come through. And as a result, he was sort of now, depending on your cynical side, that means he was either more palatable or that he was a better, you know, messenger for, you know, the new kind of politics that needed to be communicated. That kind of depends on where you stand on him, I guess. But it's interesting that that was... a lot of people picked up on that idea in America that there wasn't this same sense. He's not a downer, you know, um, and <laughs> yeah, and yeah. so people sort of appreciated that, I guess. Well, you're, you're, I mean, I think that that last statement really is the most is the most critical one. Um, that um, and recognizing that you know most Americans will never meet him, so it's fair to say that the. Obama software that gets downloaded, the freeware that we all get to download. Right. <laughs> that is to say that this image of Obama that resides inside of our imaginations is not a bummer. It's a pick-me-up. It's a, you know, it's, it's an emoticon <laughs> with a yes. smile, you know. And um, Obama is emoticon. Uh, I, I hadn't thought yeah. of that, Minister, but that's, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. good. <laughs> so they'll just, you know, they'll, they'll start making brown ones instead of yellow ones. <laughs> so, you know, the thing is that um, my understanding, I haven't read his first autobiography, but my understanding is that um, he, in fact, uh, was embittered uh, for quite a bit of his life and quite angry. And I think that, uh, you know, many people, have been entirely misled as to who um, Reverend Jeremiah Wright uh, is and was. And they, if they read his true biography, they'd see that Reverend Wright would, in the minds of most Americans, easily qualify as an American hero. And all they'd have to do is actually read what he actually did over the course of his career, and he would fit the, the model from military service to uh, actually serving on a detail for President Johnson um, uh, to be responsible for his health and many other things, right? Right. So, um, but nevertheless, <clears throat> Reverend Wright fits into a very important tradition of being a social critic that in, um, goes back you know, thousands of years. And for people who uh, feel rooted in the Judeo-Christian 
Islamic tradition, uh, you would certainly find in the judges and the prophets, the people who said, this is what's wrong in our society and we have to fix it. It's our duty. Yep. A- and I, um, I think that what, what I find immediately offensive about Obama is that um, you know, he attended Reverend Wright's church for 20 years. Uh, my initial assumption was, okay, he did this because he agreed with Reverend Wright's uh, perspectives, which is, I think, a logical first conclusion. But I spoke with um, journalist Glenn Ford, who is the, author, the editor of the Black Agenda Report, an extremely esteemed and, and, and accomplished journalist for you know, multiple decades. Okay. And he said, well, the, the, you know, um, it wasn't that Reverend Wright was trying to ride uh, Obama's coattails to national fame. It was rather that Obama used association with Reverend Wright in order to establish a political base in Chicago. This is this is how you know that that, that uh, Reverend Wright was was at least being, if he wasn't intentionally a kingmaker, being in his presence made you at least uh, potential to become the king. Mm-hmm. So he exploited that relationship. If he'd found Reverend Wright's message entirely unpalatable, then he wouldn't have stayed even under those conditions. I would I would assume. Uh, and yet he was willing to sell out uh, Reverend Wright and his perspective and his work and his heroism um, easily, in the same way, of course, that he was quite happy to sell out the Palestinian cause. And this is a cause that, you know, for which he had advocated for a number of years. But when it came time to say, for instance, that um, Jerusalem was you know, uh, permanently indivisible and would always be you know, the true capital of Israel, I mean, this is, you know, this is outrageous. He went further than any ostensibly right-wing American president or presidential candidate had ever done. Yeah, well, you know, and one of the things, I guess, that part of the problem, it seems to me, in getting anyone, you know, elected uh, in America, we've actually reviewed Obama on the show previously, um, Mm. uh, part of the problem of getting someone elected is that people, I don't know, it seems that the more potentially transformative you could be, the mm-hmm. more you need to make yourself palatable to an audience that is sort of by nature afraid of that transformation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the things that, that people didn't recognize uh, coming up to the election of Obama, because people talk about this, that it's an extraordinary event. And I, I do think it's an extraordinary event, less really about him than more about what it says that America was actually willing to take a risk. Now, you can argue that, you know, maybe the kind of person that he is, it's not as much of a risk as Americans thought they were taking. But I can tell you right. that Americans really thought, you know, uh, relatives of mine who, you know, voted for him and hadn't, I, th- I think they viewed what they were doing as this extraordinarily transformative moment. Now, having mm. said that, I'm aware that Americans are always much more willing to believe how extraordinary, you know, they are as transformative people. I, I, I'm aware <laughs> that America has this sort of patting itself on the back problem. But in, <laughs> but in fairness, I mean, I, I don't want to have that Part of it dismissed, though, that they thought they were making a significant sort of step forward. Well, um, I think this this question, and it's you know, one shouldn't approach it dogmatically. If one simply said, "Well, there's no historical difference, there's no change," that would be that would be blind. That would be ideologically um, foolish to, to to make that kind of statement. So I won't I won't say that. What I will say is that. Part of analyzing this issue becomes difficult because of the um, the, the ballyhooing uh, phraseology that's being used. So we're constantly told this is historic, but you know we don't actually have a definition of what people mean by right. historic. Right. Right. What does that mean? I mean? Right. Yeah. What does that mean in the strictest sense? Um, meaning that which will be recorded in books about uh, our collective story. Well, sure, it's historic, but I mean. Anything that gets written down, therefore, is historic as well. Uh, If what people mean is, well, it's a breakthrough. I mean, I think that what people are trying to say is it is a breakthrough that the United States 
would elect a, uh, an African-American president. And I, I don't even agree with that formulation because he's a Kenyan-American, and I'm saying that as a Kenyan-Canadian. Mm-hmm. Yep. Then that is a remarkable uh, moment in and of itself. Now, the problem with that is that it says the back padding is based on congratulating yourself <laughs> for um, saying, aren't we great, for doing something that shouldn't have been an issue. So it's kind of like, you know, um, I stopped beating my wife. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in, a, in a society that thinks it's as good as it is, uh, or it thinks it's as good as it says it does, just on a pure, you know, statistical basis, the United States should have elected four or five obviously or publicly African presidents by now. So sure. it has to come with the admission that, okay, the this, this society is profoundly flawed in terms of racial injustice. But you see, that's mixed. Now, some people say, yeah, but we made that admission. That's the whole point. Yeah, but wait a second. This is a country that is, is, is embracing this moment by wanting to say, now the problems are over. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't stand that if now this is the breakthrough moment for the, the election of this one man, that everything is now fixed. Right. It stands out because it's that unlikely that he would have been elected in the first place, which means that the problems are so profound that they're a long way from being fixed. It's true. I, I would say that that sense that you know they elected one person, and I think there's no question that, that the cultural impact that Obama has had, you know, the sort of sense that, you know, Obama will individually fix my mortgage or Obama will, (laughs) you know, come into my house and give me Christmas presents or Obama (laughs) will, you know, take my children to school. You know, the the amount of of weight uh, that's put on this one guy's shoulders um, is pretty absurd. And I think it's it's pretty obvious that that's not the case. I was heartened, I thought. I don't know if you felt the same way. I, I don't know if, did you see his inauguration? Did you watch any of the... I I was too angry that day. Even, okay, uh, I yeah, see. That, oh, yeah. Well, I one of the things that I was encouraged by in his inaugural address was that it was not a kind of you know celebratory you know well we're we've arrived you know it was it was a very somber in a lot of ways sort of speech. It was very directed at serious sort of economic issues and others that were being approached, and that was I think interesting. I mean, there was some criticism about that, the idea that it should have been more celebratory in tone. And I think this is very much sort of a, you know, let's let's get down to business. Now, you know, having said that, what that business is going to be, as you referred yeah. to before, what's going to be involved in that business, what we're actually going to do, um, I don't know. I The closing of Guantanamo is a good first step. I'm glad that's one of the first things that was done. It should have been done earlier, but, you know, I'm glad that it's being done at all, finally. Um, yeah. Those sorts of things are encouraging. But, yeah, so, I mean, I, I guess I would say that you're right about that. I mean, I think, I think that America tends to believe too much in its own ability to transform itself too quickly when this should have been done a long time ago but the i I guess i don't want to minimize what for people they really viewed as this enormous leap of faith should they have viewed it that way no absolutely not and and it has been far too long in coming but i guess better late than absolutely never at all i guess (laughs) well okay here's the question though is is what's the substance behind the um uh the the impression right i mean what is is there sure there's the hologram but is there a 3d model that actually exists anywhere Mm -hmm. uh and, and that's where many of us um are regarding this moment as not just not transformative but actually dangerous and giving us the potential to be weakened by this because we uh, stop at this th- moment you think because we stop here yeah, yeah because further. people let down their guard i mean the, i i think that the, the here's here's the best the easiest test case scenario is the clinton years uh, clinton was a a a reactionary of the he was a neoliberal 
who did a great deal of harm uh, nationally and uh, internationally. The most obvious example being, of course, directing Warren Christopher, his Secretary of State, to prevent the Security Council from invoking the word genocide regarding the Rwandan Civil War, which would have required the United States and other countries to intervene to stop um, one, one of the one of the worst uh, holocausts uh, of the century. So. Um, that's an enormous crime. This happened on Clinton's watch by his will. Uh, in ni- four years later, Clinton commits an act of international terrorism by bombing Sudan, destroying Ashifa pharmaceutical plant, and, and, and cutting off half the country's medicine supply in one of the poorest countries in the world. I mean, how many tens of thousands of people died as a result of that? Now, here, the reason I bring that up is, it's not about Clinton, but it's if, if so-called leftists and you know liberals, which you know American liberals are conservatives in most other parts of the world. Right. Um, look at how these people and African Americans bought into the idea that Clinton was somehow some kind of wonderful progressive, good guy who was on their side. The expansion of the prison industrial complex and the further centralization of media and all that. So corporate media. Now my feeling was if here's if this man. Can get false can be falsely branded with this absurd line of the first black president. If he can do that, then how much more will people let down their guard when they have a president who actually is black? And as the problem is, um, we shouldn't. You know, and I'm saying this as a Pan-Africanist, okay, that I would rather vote. You know, if I were an American, I would far rather vote for a six-foot-four, steel-blue-eyed, blonde, you know, robust Aryan who had a progressive agenda than, you know, uh, Brother Felonius Muhammad, <laughs> who had all the right, you know, supposed Afrocentric uh, credentials, but whose agenda was that of Barack Obama or Bill Clinton. And Barack Obama is a man who, you know, his, uh, his, his, he has surrounded himself with hawks, people like uh, Rahm Emanuel, chief of staff, who's, you know, Rahm Emanuel's father was an actual terrorist, an actual terrorist, an Irgun terrorist. I mean, that should have disqualified, you know, that would have disqualified anybody else to have a father of a, as a, of a terrorist, right? You've got Joe Biden, who says that, you know, he would, I think he said a statement to the effect of that he, he, he wants to be an Israeli. You've got uh, Susan Rice, who enthusiastically supports the idea of U.S. armed aggression, that is to say intervention, right. including the bombing of Somalia. Obama himself, who has routinely spoken in favor of bombing Pakistan and now has done it. You've got Obama, who is utterly silent on all the, the, the long-time bombing of Somalia by the United States and who said not one word about the mass slaughter of, what is it now, 1,400 Palestinians? So, I mean, here's a man who's made it crystal clear I mean, it doesn't get clearer than that, what he stands in, what he believes in, and what crimes that he will support. And, you know, I've mentioned Israel a few times, but let's also keep in mind that we're going to see what his attitude is towards Saudi Arabia and China, two countries who have even worse human rights records than Israel. Right. So, and I'm suspecting that it's going to be business as usual as it was under Clinton and Bush, because that would be consistent with his other uh, policies so far. He's been threatening towards Iran. He's denounced Venezuela and Cuba. These are very bad signs. Yeah, I, I, I think his um, sort of attitude or approach towards Cuba is a, li- is a little bit different, perhaps. I was reading an article about the way in which um, Obama's sort of movement in this process is is possibly going to be somewhat slow, how the sort of terminology, for example, of war of terror, war on terror, which is a ridiculous terminology when it first started getting used. Well, I don't know why we're so obsessed with war on everything, first of all. I know, yeah. I do know why, sadly, but uh, <laughs> yeah. why it has to be linguistically created is of sort of obnoxious to me. But and, and how, you know, that's sort of vanishing. It's vanished out of official 
government of uh, you know government pamphlets and you know paraphernalia and propaganda that it's it's uh, that is just sort of quietly going away and mm-hmm. it should you know now sh- it should have gone away with a public repudiation of we will never again use this term <laughs> um yeah. but i think it is i think it is somewhat instructive though that it is going away and that in a lot of sort of subtle ways for example uh his first official interview was done with a uh with a sort of it was it was not al jazeera i don't i'm not recalling now what it was it was al arabia which That's is right. That's right. which is basically like the u.s friendly cnn of the Arab world. Okay. So, which, and fair enough, you know, U.S. friendly, but it is not something which, for example, George Bush would have shown up on, you know, if, you know, would have allowed his, his dead body to be propped up in front of to do an interview. So, you know, <laughs> well, you so know, I, keep in mind that, that Americans were constantly on Al Jazeera. Oh, right. That's true. And and the idea that Al Jazeera somehow became the the sort of bad boy of media in America is ridiculous anyway. No, absolutely. But yeah. I guess the point is that I think there are some subtle, you know, subtle alterations there. I agree with you on, on the on the idea that there are alterations, but I regard them as um, as, a, as, a, as a shell game. Kind of cosmetic then. Yeah, they're cosmetic. Chomsky was, was, has been fond over the years of pointing out the ways that under so-called democratic presidents, uh, the U.S. use of the CIA to overthrow governments, uh, to disrupt to foreign economies and so forth, uh, intensified. I mean, the, it's the Kennedy White House that is the, the new era of the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the white-collar uh, world rulers. <laughs> you know, yeah. we're not going to use generals to overthrow when we can do it in this kind of gentlemanly way. And uh, that I, I think that's what we're in for. I think this is this is definitely Camelot two. Uh, it'll be Camelot two minus the adultery. <laughs> and um, uh, so we're going to see, uh, or rather, it's going to take us a while to see. But we will eventually know uh, the, the type of widespread interference, the the, the supporting of uh, brutal, vicious dictatorships in the interests of uh, of U.S. Uh, policy. You know, some people would say, "Well, you're 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 judging him too soon." I'm saying, let's look at what he's done so far, and that's the best indicator of what he's going to do next, because it's always our past behavior that is the most reliable predictor of future behavior. Well, then let me let me, if I can, uh, use that as a segue into this idea of sci-fi and politics and tie those things together, because. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If since since I am I am talking to you as as Minister Faust author, um, yeah. I think it may startle some people uh, who would think about the idea that you know science fiction and and fantasy writers are not uh, explicitly interested generally, or at least not in their professional careers, are not interested in these things directly. And I want to I want to sort of open that up quickly and ask about that because one of the things that we talked about when we first met, uh, I saw you presenting at a panel at the World Fantasy Convention. We were talking about uh, you were talking about the issue of politics and how politics plays into these things and someone asked the question and i was kind of stunned that they asked this question about well you know since fantasy is really a form of escapism i mean you know and that's basically all that it is you know why is it that you would accompany and i was sort of you know flabbergasted like that like no one has ever read other works which are definitionally science fictional yet have all these things to say about you know uh, not just post-apocalyptic scenarios but all these other sort of current present day issues of surveillance and things like that watch the movie brazil and then talk about how science fiction has nothing to do with politics but i guess the question is then what sort of drew you to the idea of science fiction? I understand how satire connects to politics, but what drew you to the idea specifically of how science fiction could be a way to make commentary in an effective way about the current political climate? I mean, was it a res- is it a restriction for you? You find dealing with people who ask questions like that, I guess I would say, or what's been your experience uh, in sort of dealing with science fiction and politics? 
that's a, I don't think that I've often been confronted with. I, I suspect that there are lots of people who feel that and they just don't say it out loud. Um, right, because right. as you as you know, you know, fantasy and science fiction. As much as when we're in those genres, they it feels like they're enormously popular, and it's true that those those genres do keep books in print for for a long time, and, right. and that kind of gives us the sense that they're mega genres. But in reality, they're a small slice of the overall publishing uh, pie, and that's one reason why some of the most successful science fiction authors who do have social agendas have carefully marketed themselves as non-genre writers. I'm thinking specifically of Margaret Atwood, mm-hmm. uh, Kurt Vonnegut, and Michael Crichton. Yep. And uh, even Daniel Keyes. I mean, you know, it's not. It's, it's hard for us to imagine that a book could be more obviously science fiction than Flowers for Algernon, and you win the Hugo and the Nebula. But nevertheless, the majority <laughs> of readers, I think, don't realize that Flowers for Algernon is science fiction. Right. Mind you, it's, you know, it's also a brilliant book, and, and maybe it's to its credit that it, it, it just sells itself so well in the psychological realism. But, I mean, I, you know, was five years old and starting to watch the original Star Trek, and uh, my mother was political, and I learned early on, well, this is a story that is, at its best, dealing with um, issues of of war and alienation and xenophobia in a way that is um, exciting and thrilling and memorable. And that was certainly what uh, Rod Serling explicitly uh, did. uh, I mean, he lied in an interview before he launched The Twilight Zone to say that he wasn't doing that. But, <laughs> of course, but was. that's exactly what he was doing because he'd, he'd been bitten for telling social messages in his non-science fiction fantasy. So he thought, well, I can wrap this stuff up in science fiction fantasy and I can slip it past people, and, but eventually they'll figure it out. And um, and then you know I I loved I mean I I saw um, you know some uh, comics of the work of Alan Moore and uh, to an, to an extent the work of Frank Miller addressing uh, social issues yeah. uh, in Dark Knight and Watchmen and whatnot and when I studied uh, Gulliver's Travels which is you know widely misunderstood as a as children's literature and and as far as I'm <laughs> concerned it's the first Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the exploration of these uh, bizarre, brave new worlds and, and uh, bizarre life forms, and, and it's all a political allegory for what was wrong in England and Europe at the time that Jonathan Swift was writing. With a caveat, if I may say, that uh, in this case, Kirk becomes like the people that he studies in Gulliver's well, Travels. Yeah. Yes, and I think that's, that's the way in which uh, Gulliver's Travels is superior to uh, Star Trek, in that uh, Kirk is ultimately the moral center of the Star Trek universe, right. or at least the original Star Trek universe, that if Kirk does it, the narrative is telling us it was the right thing to do, right. whereas Gulliver is a, is a buffoon. Right. Uh, it, it's kind of like Star Trek meets the ugly American. Right. Uh, so, you know, I think... Uh, and, and that's, you know, I think that is richer because we should first identify with a person who is then later on held up to criticism, and then we can realize, oh, that's me. That's why Battlestar Galactica is so excellent, um, because the, um, the colonials are, uh, they are the Americans, and at the same time, when they're under occupation, they're the Iraqis. Right. Uh, it, you know, the, the, it, Battlestar Galactica is, I would say, the single. Yeah. Okay. I'll just say it. I say that it is the single bravest piece of American media when it comes to the discussion of war. Even more brave than the excellent Generation Kill, because um, here's a show. And keep in mind, I mean, my, my politics. I, I believe in the inherent right to self-defense, but on a daily basis, I basically qualify myself as a pacifist. Uh, here's a show that said. If you were under occupation, you too would consider becoming a suicide bomber if you had nothing to live for. Hmm. And yeah. you'd certainly be willing to blow people up. Yeah. And 
is some people would say, well, we would never do that. Well, let's look at some basics of American pop culture. You know, look at the 1980s, Red Dawn, Invasion USA. Yep. There were a couple of others like this, right? Yep. And they all say that, yeah, American teens, were it was their duty to become terrorists. Right. And they were called guerrillas at the time, but I mean, you know, that's what they are, right? They're terrorists. And either we say it's always wrong or we say that it's never wrong. And right. I, I'd say it's, it's better to say that it's always wrong, but at least you understand why somebody would do it. Right. It's always wrong, but, but you, know, you know, withhold judgment a little bit as, or at least look to more of the causes of why you know, people do that way than rather dismissing you know, them as delusional fanatics, which is what we tend to do in this country. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's why, and, and clearly people can sometimes do it, which is why Rahm Emanuel's father gets a pass for being a terrorist, because they say, well, his terrorism, which they would call freedom fighting, uh, served a, a higher goal. And nobody, the only people who get to call anyone on this are true pacifists, I would say. I mean, everybody who supports police or military and and I mean, in Canada, I don't know how many Americans know this, but every uh, November 11th, we wear um, plastic poppies, um, yep. which are common in Commonwealth countries, uh, to celebrate the armistice for World War One. Well, in fact, the weekend of World Fantasy Convention that was going on, wasn't it? I mean, because it was right. that was held Probably, up in Canada. Yeah. I saw people walking around with those, and I heard that being referred to. So I assume that's what that was. <laughs> that, that's right, and it, it, that's funny. It never occurred to me that Charlie the Americans were wondering, "What is this? Is there some kind of cult, or right. what's going on here?" But I mean, really, it is. It's a cult. Uh, it's a cult that says you see, it's founded. Remembrance Day uses as its uh, slogan, "Never forget," uh, at least in Canada. And it's supposed to mean. I mean, when I was raised as a post-Vatican II Catholic, that was supposed to mean we will honor all of the dead, military, non-military, of all sides who fell in war. And I thought, well, that's a good. That's yeah. a good remembrance. Yeah. As I got older, it became clear to me that that's not how it was. Be, that many people, if not most people, didn't take it that way. It actually meant. Let's remember our military dead. And it's, the poppies come from a, a famous poem called In Flanders Fields. And yep. when I was a kid in school, we all we took – well, so as an English professor, you'd, you'd know it. And you'd probably know it in a better way than those of us who were propagandized with it because we only read the beginning. And the beginning is about the, the dead and the fallen and so forth. But the last third of the poem is about essentially pick up my gun and go kill those Huns. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, so we have um, uh, this 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 willingness for people to um, say that they they want a just world or they want peace or freedom or whatever. But what they ignore is the ways that their commitment to militarism and the culture of the gunman, and I specifically say man, um, is all about supporting the injustice of their side yeah. and calling it justice. And it, it starts at an early age. It's the fact that, I mean, one thing I find, and, I mean, I'm, I'm being a little bit hard on Americans in this conversation because your audience is American and will relate to the examples. But if I were talking to Canadians, I'd have lots and lots and lots of... We do have some Canadian listeners, so they may pick up on it too. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. Um, but I, something I've always found strange with the United States is that being, you know, historically speaking, one of the most significant republics in world history, uh, certainly in the modern era, Right. Um, that there's this intense yearning, and, and I think especially and, and shamefully inside of science fiction and fantasy, this yearning for monarchism, this belief in yeah. the, somehow you know, the, the ancestral good noble line, even the fact that we still use the word noble to mean good when historically nobles are simply the top gangsters. You know, so until we can – and so you know, we celebrate knights, you know, knights with the letter K. Um, these are just the, the mafia dons leg breakers. 
Do yeah. you pay your taxes or we cut your head off and we yeah. steal your daughters and we wipe them? And, and, you know, so, I mean, this might sound like I'm, I'm just on a ramble or a rant, but it, it's all about how do we justify the powerful and proclaim them to be righteous and good? And, and how does that help us cover up the, all of the people who we have thrown into the dark places and the people we starve and the people who are in chains so that we can have a life of luxury? And, you know, congratulations on closing down Guantanamo. If it happens, it hasn't happened yet. Um, I will wait to see whether or not the huge number of other CIA black sites or what we might call CIA white sites actually get closed down. Right. Um, because by definition, they're secret. <laughs> right, so we wouldn't know. Exactly, yeah. The proceeding was a presentation of Upon Further Review, hosted at www.furtherreview.net. As usual, all rights are reserved. If you liked what you heard, please vote for us at podcastalley.com, vitalpodcast.com, and add us to your list of favorites at podcastpickle.com. You can leave us a comment at www.furtherreview.net, drop us a line at upon at furtherreview.net, or give us a phone call or send a fax to 206-339-UFR1. That's 206-339-8371. And lastly, don't be afraid to express your opinions. We know you have them. Let them out. Feel the power. Or you could just blindly accept whatever we tell you is fact. That'll work. pretty good. Well, it wasn't bad. Well, there were parts of it that weren't very good, It though. could have been a lot better. I didn't really like it. It was pretty terrible. It was bad. It was awful. It was terrible. Get him away. Hey, boo. Boo.